I think Romans chapter 11 probably stands out uh, as its own as probably the greatest chapter anywhere in the New Testament anyhow that uh, deals with the uh, nation of Israel. And I showed you, you know, last week how important it is and how it fits into everything that uh, Paul wants us to understand. I basically gave you three things, and I accidentally found it, if you remember, in my notes in my Bible of a message that I had preached many, many, many years ago, three things about the nation of Israel. And, you know, it was based on the thing that there's some things about Israel that we should know. And then there's some things about Israel that we should see. And then there's some things about Israel we should watch. And we talked about that, kind of put that uh, as a little outline in there as we came through the introduction. And, you know, uh, we talked about uh, how out of Matthew chapter 24, how important it is for the nation of Israel. I think that uh, we already know now from last week that we're seeing the very fulfillment of Matthew chapter 24. Really, Matthew chapter 24 was fulfilled in 1948. We're seeing now the very... Uh, beginning of the unfolding of the things in the end. And it doesn't take, uh, it doesn't take a rocket science to look around this world and see that uh, what we're up against and uh, where it's all going. And, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an incredible time to be living in, and uh, it's a time that every child of God needs to be even more fervent in understanding that where we're at in these last moments. You know, we used to use the term the last days. But that term is really not appropriate anymore when you understand where we're at. It's the last moments, maybe even the last seconds before the Lord comes back and all this begins to unfold. Yeah, I look at the nation of Israel right now and what's unfolding over there. And, and uh, you know, we, we don't think about things very much that they happen many times. I don't know if you understand how everything that goes on around us in our world today, uh, in the political agenda... Uh, that takes place. It all has some kind of piece to the puzzle. Um, you know, this thing of Obama getting the uh, uh, Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, it's unheard of. You know, guy's been in office six months and hasn't done anything. And, and they come out and tell you that they didn't give it to him because of what he's done. But they gave it to him because of what he said he was going to do. So what do you do if it doesn't make that happen? Do you take it back? I mean, but people look at that and, you know, I love to read the editorials in the, in the newspaper because it gives you such a cross-section of, 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 I call it a cross-section of stupidity. You know, it shows you how inept people are today of being able to find out where we're at and all that's going on. And we look at something like that and, you know, part of the crowd says, well, that was a great thing because he's a great guy. Uh, the other crowd says, well, he hadn't do anything, and it, it's absolutely ridiculous to give him that. Uh, and yet, you know, the, pe the average person fails to see uh, the mindset behind what is all going on. Obviously, you know, to be a president of the United States, and I don't care what president it is, um, there's a tremendous amount of, of power which feeds a tremendous amount of ego. And, uh, you know, we have to maintain a status quo. And, and, and basically, and it's a great lesson for you and for me. I, I, when I heard him, when I heard he got the, uh, the, the Nobel Peace Prize, a verse immediately came to mind out of the book of uh, Proverbs, I believe it is. It may be in Ecclesiastes. Somebody asked the question a couple of weeks ago. He's either in one of my one-on-one -on -one Bible studies or in Thursday, and I can't remember. But it talked about how that when you sit down to eat with a king, uh, and to eat his dainties, that you're better to put a knife to your own throat than to t t partake of his delicacies. That, and that's a verse that I don't know how many times somebody said, what does that mean? What does that mean? 
it means that when the king invites you in, me and you, to sit down to eat, there's an agenda behind it because he just doesn't eat like people like me, me and you. And he wants something from you. And the message there is to look behind. Don't get caught up in all of the things that are going on and think that it's okay. There's an agenda behind what's going on. And in this world today, there's an agenda behind everything that's going on. Most people don't see that giving him the Nobel Peace Prize put him in a position now where he has to, with a man with his ego, and I'm not just talking about him, any president, any president who has that ego who has to portray himself, and let's face it, you know, he wants to portray himself as the man of peace and everything that uh, brings along with it. Do you know how hard it's going to be for him to make hardline decisions now based on the fact that he's been given that award and everybody, and they better said it. We're giving this not on what he's done, but what he said he's going to do and what we expect him to do in the future. Wow. You put somebody, put something in your life like that that gives you some kind of honor and prestige, that they're going to hold you accountable to it and every decision you have to make from that point on, they're going to bring that back and make it fit that way? I'm telling you, man. I'm telling you. If I'd have been the president, of course I never will be, but if I would have been the president, I'd have said no thanks. I'd have been honest enough to say. I wouldn't have say, just said, well, I don't deserve this and many other people do. I would just simply say, I don't deserve it because I ain't been here long enough. And by the bottom line is, you know what? I'm not going to guarantee I can take this peace prize because I'm not going to guarantee if you guys keep messing with Israel, we're going to have a lot of peace around here. But then that's just me. But everything in this world today, everything in this world today is a piece to the puzzle. And uh, this is the difference between having wisdom, knowledge, and then the Bible says understanding. Understanding will be the ability to look at the world scene from your Bible standpoint and understand what God's doing and how all of these pieces fit. I cannot emphasize to you, I cannot overemphasize to you how that, where we're at right now is exactly toward the end of this whole thing. And, um, and as we enter chapter 11 today, uh, I hope that in these last final moments, before it all unfolds itself, that it'll help you pull it in line. Because as I said last week, we're living in a day and age where it does not pay to get your nose bent out of joint with God. You may not have enough time to get it back on before he comes back. And as Martin Luther used to say all the way back in the 1500s, and it was a good statement then, it's even more prevalent now, he used to say, keep short accounts with God. Now I want you to look at Romans chapter 11. Last week we looked at the last three verses in chapter 10, and I showed you how that those were a transition to bring you into this great chapter. And this chapter deals with probably the single greatest issue uh, for you and for me in the day that we live in, and that is the restoration of the nation of Israel. And I want to read today Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. And it simply says this, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Watch ye not what the Scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession uh, to God against Israel, saying, Lord, thou hast killed thy prophets, and dig down thine altars. I am left alone and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then at this present time also there is a remnant according 
to the election of grace. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We do love you. We thank you, Father, that you'll uh, let us uh, put forth the Word of God today. Help us, Lord, in all that we do. And, Lord, we'll be careful to give you the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, verse 1 asks a great question. And I guess it's probably the number one question today that uh, would set the political arena of planet Earth. And that simply is this, hath God cast away his people? And that's how he starts this great chapter, because we're dealing with a chapter here that's going to show you that that's not true. God has not cast away his people. In fact, verses 2 through 36, the rest of the chapter is a detailed answer to you and me as the body of Christ why he has not done that. And it's an incredible. And the answer, obviously, is no, he hasn't. And in the opening verses, we, we begin to see some great examples of how, and I tell you this all the time, we're going to see today, uh, through this passage, these four or five verses, you're going to see today one of the great illustrations of how that the New Testament principles are revealed through the Old Testament stories. And how important they are that the Old Testament stories, when you read them back there in the Old Testament, that it reveals the New Testament principles. Did you ever notice this? Did you ever notice, and I've commented on this before many times, did you ever notice how that when you get into the New Testament, past Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are no more stories? There are no stories. You have Paul writing to churches, Paul writing to individuals, and then you have some of the epistle books, where general epistle books, where he deals with issues, but there's no more stories. When you go through the Old Testament, you know what it is? It's one story after another story after another story. And for you to completely understand your Bible to the point where you really, what I call, have a handle on your Bible, you have to be able to understand that the Old Testament stories in the Old Testament are illustrations of the New Testament principles. To me, a young man or a young lady who really knows their Bible is the ability to see the New Testament principle, line it up back with the uh, Old Testament, uh, uh, you know, story. An easy one to look at would be, you know, uh, in Ephesians chapter 6, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, where it talks about putting on the whole armor of God. The great parallel to that that lays that out would be going back to the story in the Old Testament of David and Goliath. And when you look back there and you compare the two, there's a place where you have a picture of the Old Testament uh, story illustrating the New Testament principle. Or, when you read the New Testament principle, if you want to really grasp the depth of it, find the Old Testament story that reveals it. That's really the key to your Bible. <laughs> uh, there, and there's no way that I could ever teach a class on that. It, it, it'd be on forever. You all be dead before we got through with it. And uh, it, it just so much. It, that comes with just a lifelong pursuit of you wanting to learn your Bible. You see, in everything that we do, whether it's the Bible basics class or whether it's institute, or no matter what it is, even Sunday morning or Thursday night, and I tell people this all the time, I can have, I can have all the material in the world. I can lay out the Bible as simply as I did in Bible basics or as complicated as we do in the, uh, uh, you know, in the institute class. We can take time on Thursday night to answer every question you have. We can do what we do on Sunday morning and break down books of the Bible so you can grasp them. But at the end of the day, it has to be your desire to be here and to learn the Bible and to study it through on your own. Uh, yet, after all the years I have in ministry, I've learned a lot of things, but I've not yet learned, nor do I ever think I will learn, how to give you the ability to want to have the desire to learn the Bible. That has to be something that comes between you and God. 
And in Romans chapter 11, it's really built around verse 25 of that chapter. And verse 25 says this. It says, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceit. The blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Now that's an incredible verse. We're not going to unearth all of that this morning. We'll wait till we get into certain aspects of it. Uh, but the, the main point I want you to see here is the fact that we are not, as the church, to be ignorant of the mystery that God is not finished with the nation of Israel. And that's really the whole concept uh, of what we're talking about. Uh, God has a laying out and a detail of, with dealing with the nation of Israel that so we don't make the same mistake and become wise in our own conceit that God is finished with the nation of Israel. And verse 2, God hath not cast away uh, His people that He foreknew. I think the first thing that I look at there and, and just kind of put it all together is the word foreknow or foreknowledge or who He foreknew. You know, when you talk to a Calvinist, he talks about foreknowledge being about salvation. Now, obviously, I know that God knows everything. And uh, God knowing everything, there's a big $25 word for that, and that word is omniscient. When you, uh, when you, know, the, when you know what the word omniscient means, you know that God uh, is all-knowing. When you want to talk about God being everywhere, that's omnipresent. And you want to talk about God being all-powerful, that's omnipotent. And those big $25 words simply mean that God is everywhere, God is all-powerful, and God knows everything. So when you look at it from that aspect, that's exactly what you're dealing with. God does know everything. His foreknowledge in the Bible is never really dealt with as far as your salvation is concerned. Obviously, God knows who will get saved and who won't. But He never uses the word foreknowledge in that context. He never uses the word foreknowledge in the context of salvation, but rather he uses the word foreknowledge in the context of the job that God has for you to do. When you take that aspect and put it into perspective of your own personal life, it changes the dynamics of everything that you and I should be involved in. It should, we should come away from that understanding that God's foreknowledge the reason God saved you and I. We've talked about this before. The whole purpose of you and I being saved after we're saved is because God has something that He wants us to accomplish. And God has something that He wants you to do. We see the example of it, and we don't have to turn there this morning, but in Jeremiah chapter 1, how that God, uh, through His foreknowledge, and it, there's nothing about Jeremiah being saved in that passage, but it's about what Jeremiah is going to do. And just as God, through His foreknowledge, had a plan for the nation of Israel, and that's what He's talking about here, God, through His foreknowledge, has a plan for you. And uh, it's, a, it's a great concept. And then the next thing we want to see in this passage as we move down through it is another great key in, to your Bible as far as, as getting the context is concerned. And I've told you before that absolutely crucial in anything that you do in your Bible is the aspect of context. And there's a great word in this chapter uh, that uh, is a very key word, and it's the word remnant. And uh, 81 times in the Old Testament alone, you're going to find that word remnant. That word remnant will always carry with it, depending on the context, I'd say probably 90% of the time, it'll always carry the context of the tribulation period dealing with the nation of Israel. In my Bible, if you would go through my study Bible, you would find that probably the word remnant is marked in yellow wherever it is in the Bible that deals with this context. 
you will find, and I've talked about it many, many times, and we talk about it in our book on how to study the Bible. If you would go through my Bible, in my study Bible, you would find that the key words that always denote the context are marked in yellow for me. You got some day on an afternoon, and a rainy afternoon, when you don't have nothing to do, and there's nothing on television. Uh, you know what you ought to do? Get your concordance. Take a word like the word remnant. Start at the beginning of your Bible. Run through it. And every time you find that word remnant in there, mark it. And uh, when you mark it in there, I do that for a purpose. Somebody asked me a question on Thursday night, or I'm teaching the Bible to somebody, and somebody asked me a question out of Isaiah someplace, and I turned to Isaiah. That, you know, and here I got. Here's a whole book of Isaiah with nothing in there but, uh, you know, blank pages. And I got one little word marked in yellow. And that one little word, no matter what it may be, in this case, we'll say it's the word remnant. When I turn to that, and I know some of you think I'm so bright with the Bible and so good with the Bible and so smart with the Bible that I know we can just glance at every book in the Bible, that's not true. I cheat with the Bible. And that means I mark the things in there that the moment I turn to that page, something draws my attention, a little word in yellow or red, or some of you color code your Bible, it looks like those boxes of popsicles you buy, it's got 28 different flavors in it. And you come right back there and there's the word, remnant. Right in the middle of that sea and that ocean of words, in a moment, in a, in a heartbeat, Open up this page of the Bible. My focus now is to one word that before I read anything in there, I now know what the context is going to be. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. You know how you get that done? You get that done by wanting to know your Bible more than anything else on planet Earth and spending the time when you could be doing something else to make sure you get that done. I can't make you do that. No preacher on this planet can make you do that. I try to make my preaching be motivational. I try to make it be a convictional. I try to make it everything that it's supposed to be. But even in all of that, at the end of the day, you have to go home and say, I'm going to do this in my Bible instead of doing this. You have to decide long-term which one is going to pay off more for you. And that's exactly where you're at with it, the word remnant. You know, you can take different kinds of studies. You can take studies of subjects. Obviously, numerology is a great study. You can study whole books of the Bible like we do many, many times. Or you can study verses. But one of the greatest studies you'll ever take is word studies. And it doesn't take a lot of, doesn't have to have a lot of books. All you need is a concordance, a good concordance, and your Bible, and an idea that you want to find out what a word means that you heard me talk about, and then simply start putting into your Bible. And so verse 5 says, So even so then at this present time, also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Now, I want to show you here in a moment, because I want you to see some of these words here. And I want to, uh, you can turn to me with these. Maybe you just want to write them down. But I want to read you a number of passages in the Old Testament and show you how the word remnant is used. Because it's a very key word in your Bible. And maybe you don't want to turn to all of them and just want to listen, but then you can get them on your own. But Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20, listen to what it says. Now, you're reading this passage in Isaiah, see, and you really have no idea. You're just kind of coming through like a lot of God's people, and you want the Bible to make sense to you. Well, let me show you some key words here. And it shall come to pass, in verse 20, Isaiah 10, 20, and it shall come to pass in that day. Well, that's your first one right there. If you know anything at all, you know that that day is going to set the context of some place around the second coming of Christ. That it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel, 
and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob shall no more again stay upon him that smote them, but shall stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. See, there's one, two, three times in that little passage of three or four verses where you have the word remnant. And what it does, you automatically now should know what the context. Add to that the day of the Lord. Add to that the house of Jacob. And you have everything you need to discern the context. Look at Isaiah chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set His hand again the second time to recover the remnant of His people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pethus and from Kirsh and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hermoth and, and islands of the sea. And He shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcast of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Now the key there again in verse 11 obviously is that day. But then you see the word, the remnant, recover the remnant of his people. And right before that word remnant, you find the second time. Now that's very instructive in your Bible. Because God, we talked about this last week, God recovers his people two times. When I say recover that, I mean he brings them back. The first time he recovered them was at the end of the uh, 606 captivity there, that 70-year captivity, where he gathered them back into the land to have them ready for the first coming of Christ. That's the first time he gathered them. Notice it says, it says, uh, uh, and it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. The first time he set his hand to recover the remnant of his people was in uh, 70 years after 606 B.C. That would be Ezra and Nehemiah in your Bible when the remnant goes back. The second time he set forth his hand to recover his people 1918, 1948, what we talked about last week. The first time he set his hand to recover the remnant, it set him up for the first coming of Christ. The second time he set forth his hand to recover the remnant of Israel, it sets him up for the second coming of Christ. See how easy it is? Everything in your Bible points to the fact that he's on his way. Isaiah chapter 37, verse 32. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they shall escape out of, out of Mount Zion. The zeal of the Lord of the host shall do this. Again, Mount Zion being the key. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 9. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall thoroughly glean the remnant of Israel as a vine, turn back and hand as a grape gatherer into the basket. There again, the gleaning. Anytime you find the word gleaning, mark it in your Bible. The context is going to be God dealing with Israel right at the second coming of Christ. And there again, you'll find the word remnant. Ezekiel chapter 11, uh, no, Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 22. Yet behold, therein shall be left the remnant that shall be brought forth, both sons and daughters. Behold, they shall come forth unto you, and ye shall see their way and their doings. And they shall be uh, comforted uh, concerning the evil that I have brought upon Jerusalem. That will be the Antichrist. Even concerning all that I have brought upon it. And they shall comfort you. And when their ways they shall doings, you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, saith the Lord God. On and on and on and on. Look at Joel chapter 2. Now, Joel chapter 2 is, if you remember, is uh, in Acts. Remember Thursday night, one of our water dog guys, uh, uh, he went, uh, read the passage in Acts. They, dumb idiot didn't even have a clue that he was reading out of Joel chapter 2. If you would have broke it down and asked that clown if what Joel chapter 2 meant and laid it back to Acts chapter 2 and break down the book of Acts, 
he couldn't have done it if his life depended on it. You put a gun to his head. But see, I want you to know your Bible. I want you to know, and some of you did, boy, because you nailed him on it. But I want you to know the difference. Why in Acts chapter 1 and 2, he quotes the prophet Joel. What the prophet Joel was dealing with. And how that relies to the book of Acts. That's the difference between knowing your Bible and not knowing your Bible. Now look at this, Joel chapter 2. And it shall come to pass, and afterward, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens, in the earth, blood, fire, and pillars of smoke. And the sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is that what it says? No, it doesn't say saved. Oh, I'm sorry, you're not looking at it. It doesn't say saved. It says delivered. You know why? Because Israel doesn't get saved. Israel gets delivered. And so Acts chapter 2, when you put that over there, that passage had nothing to do with anybody being saved. It had to do with the remnant of Israel being delivered. It's the difference between knowing your Bible and knowing some things about the Bible. All right, look at uh, Revelation chapter 11, verse 13. I'll skip through some of these here. It says, In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted, and gave glory to the God of heaven. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. And the dragon, that'd be Satan, was wroth with the woman, that'd be Israel, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. On and on and on it goes. And we could literally stay here for an hour and look at the references in the Old Testament that have to do with the nation of Israel uh, concerning them being a remnant. Now, all through history, and here's a great concept. And boy, if you're ever going to pastor someday or you're ever going to be in charge of a ministry someday, these are the things that, that you learn about ministry by looking back and seeing and understanding the things that are involved. And it's, it, it's true. There are certain things in the Bible that are as absolute as the sun coming up tomorrow. And when you get into the ministry or you get into a place where your God has put you in charge of something, uh, you can absolutely, if you have these things in the back of your mind, it saves you a lot of hassle. Now, all through history, God has gotten the job done. Remember we talked about how that uh, in his foreknowledge he, he wanted to deliver Israel because they had something he wanted to do with Israel? And this is a great concept. And one of the greatest concepts you're ever going to find is all down through history, God gets whatever he's going to get done with just a small number of people. It's an incredible concept. In 606 B.C., when the whole nation of Israel, what, probably 18 million people maybe by that time, they were taken all through uh, and scattered and separated out. When God wanted to bring them back and recover them the first time and, and get them set up for the first coming of Christ, He used a remnant, a small group. Out of 18, 15 million people maybe, He brought back over a little over 42,000 people. A remnant, a remnant, a remnant. Israel was then scattered for 400 years. At the first coming of Christ, when the Lord shows up, what did He do? Who believed on him? Did all of the Jews believe on him? No. It was just a small remnant of the people that believed that he was their true Messiah. It's all true down through history. In 70 AD, when Titus destroys Jerusalem, 
uh, and, and for the next 1,800 years, they have no land. In 1948, we talked about last week, when God goes back to recover them the second time. I told you at the end of World War II, there was probably no more than 8 to 9 million Jews left on this planet. Where were the rest of them? They were dead. They were buried. They made up the ashes of the concentration camps. God, just like the first time he recovered, brought back just a remnant. And in the tribulation period, the Antichrist will kill millions of the people on this planet. Or they'll be killed in the tribulation. And his main goal in the tribulation period, after the first part of the tribulation, into the great tribulation, is going to be onefold. The last three and a half years is going to consist of one concept for the Antichrist. And that is, wipe out the nation of Israel. That'll be Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 13 for you, if you want to look at it. And of course... He kills them down to a remnant. And that is the exact same remnant that Paul's making a reference to. Here's the connection in Romans chapter 11. In Romans chapter 11, he's telling us that God is going to save a remnant of his people. And there's going to be a remnant. He says in verse 5, Even so then at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And all down through history, God has dealt with his people based on that concept. You know what? It's almost true of everything in the Bible. I told you that if you ever get into the ministry, you're going to see it. When God, when God wanted to take the world back in Genesis chapter 6 and was going to wipe out the world and wanted to start the world over, you know what He did? There probably was 6 billion people on planet Earth in Noah's time. God wiped out all of planet Earth and started over with just 8 people, a remnant, a remnant. I had a guy tell me one time, and it shows the kind of reasoning that a lot of people have. You know, uh, in, in your world, in my world, if you believe the Bible is the Word of God, if you sit here this morning and believe that the King James Bible is the Word of God, you realize that you're a remnant? And I've had, if you believe that salvation is by the blood of Christ and you take a stand for the things that the Bible teaches, you're a remnant today. And the reasoning is, I had a guy tell me one time just about a year and a half ago, he told me, he says, well, how do you guys think you're right? He said, do you realize that all the people out in the world today that don't believe what you believe and, and you just a little group over here that believe what you believe and everybody else over here believes something else and how can you think you're right? And of course, you know what, that would be kind of intimidating if you didn't know your Bible. And my answer back with him was simply this. You know what? In Noah's time, there must have been six billion people, but only eight people got on that ark. Why? Because the principle is God's faithful few always get the job done. How about in the book of Judges with Gideon? Gideon starts out with what? 32,000 guys. And God says, got too many. They're going up against one of the most formidable armies in the world, the Midianites. 32,000. God says, you got too many. He immediately cut, starts cutting them down. You know what Gideon winds up with? 300 men out of 32,000, and God got the job done with the 300. You know why he does that? He does that so we can't boast in our numbers. You know what one of the terrible sins was in the nation of Israel? And God, got, God whacked David really hard for this. You know what David did? Besides, uh, The only two real things that David did that got God upset was the matter of Uriah the Hittite, and, uh, and the second thing was this, when he numbered the people. He wasn't supposed to number the people. You know why? Because they were going to war. And when they numbered the people, to see how many they had to go to war, 
it took away from the fact that it didn't matter how many they had to go to war, that God's power was going to give them the victory. Their victory was not in their numbers. I'm telling you, folks, it's a great lesson taught in these Old Testament passages. When God wanted to change the world at the first coming of Christ, He took a remnant of the Jews, 12 men. When God wanted to start the church age and carry it on down through the next 2,000 years, He started with one man, Paul. Down through Christianity. And I'll tell you this the truth. Any church, any time, any place. In history, I don't care where you go. It's true of today. It's true of 200 years ago. It was even true in the Philadelphian church. It is just a true absolute statement in any church on planet earth who believes and saved and wants to do the work of God in any church that God has called and empowered and given the Bible and they they're saved and they know in any church I don't care where it is you give me a church of 500 I guarantee you 100 are doing the work you give me a church of 2,000 I guarantee you 500 are doing the work 1,500 are floating it it's true in every culture it's true in every church age. It's true wherever you go in history. And it's certainly true today. God is going to get it done with a remnant of people who are going to do it. Everybody else sits on the sideline. That's just the way that it is. And you need to understand that that's the way that it is. If I didn't understand that as a pastor, if I didn't understand that as a spiritual leader, and I learned that lesson many, many years ago, but could you imagine you as a young pastor someday, if you don't learn that lesson and you start to build a church and the church comes to the place where you get four or 500 people in it and suddenly you just see the, 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 the majority of people just don't do anything and you have a 500 group of church people, 100 people are carrying the load. If, if you didn't understand that great principle, I'd drive you nuts. You'd beat yourself to death trying to make the other 400 do what needed to do. And of course, uh, you know, that, that's just the way life is. It'll never change. It'll always be that way because that's the principle by which it works down through church history. And down through the church history, a remnant of God's true church has always survived. That was one of the things the Thursday night that the guy couldn't get. The fact that God always has his faithful few no matter where you are. And maybe you can't see them. Maybe they're not prevalent. Maybe they don't stand out where all the spotlight of the world is on them. But I guarantee you, they're there. And God does it that way for one reason. And it's a great listen, a lesson. He does it that way for one reason. And that is the fact that no flesh can glory in, his, in itself. That if you get the victory, it has to be of God. And that's a great concept to learn. A great concept to learn. God is going to call a remnant of His people back to Him, and God hath not cast off His people forever. But we begin to see that at the first coming of Christ, Israel is in absolute apostasy. You've heard me say it many, many times. They're, they don't even resemble themselves, if you know anything about the Bible, as they were at the height and the pinnacle, like we studied in Bible basic class. The devil has done his work. He's infiltrated the nation of Israel and he's destroyed them as God's people. In fact, here's where the parallels of history become so incredible to me. At the first coming of Christ, you find, uh, you can read it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Consider the nation of Israel at the first coming of Christ. They've added to the law. They now have feasts that they have that mean absolutely nothing in the Bible. 
Many of the feasts, many of the things that they're doing are connected with the pagans that they've been hanging out with for the last 400 years. And almost every aspect of the Old Testament has been done away with as far as God's concerned. You notice that you find when you start coming through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, you find two groups. You find a group called the Pharisees. Then over here you find a group called the Sadducees. You realize that you don't find those groups down through history? You realize that those two people groups pop up during the 400 years while they're scattered out over there when God has nothing to do with them? You realize that in the Old Testament, God had two legitimate people groups that the nation of Israel would have looked to. One of them were the Levites. They were the priesthood. The other one were the scribes. What did the scribes do? They were the custodians of the Word of God. Every Old Testament book that is written down, down through the Old Testament, had to be copied or written by a bona fide, certified scribe. But boy, by the time we get to the first coming of Christ, you don't read much about Levite, do you? You don't read nothing about the scribe very much, do you? You know who's got center stage? The Sadducees and the Pharisees. They are the religious political groups that grew up in the midst of the apostasy that the devil used now to overwhelm and take over the nation of Israel. You find the parallel today in the church. The scribes and the Pharisees match up to what we call the Bible scholars today who want to take the Bible out of your hand and give you a bunch of rules and stupidity about where you got your Bible from and do the same damage to the church that it did to the nation of Israel. Temple worship has now turned into a country fair with a McDonald's and a Starbucks and a Walmart. Just like the churches today, where one time in the Old Testament, the priesthood and the temple was a very strict thing. Now Jesus himself goes in two times, one at the beginning of his public ministry and one at the end of his public ministry. And he drives out the money changers. He closes up the Starbucks. He shuts down the McDonald's restaurants, the cafeterias. He shuts down all the things that take the church and make it just like any other organization out there. And that's what they did in the Old Testament, and that's what the churches do today. Jesus drives them out. To me, now here's, and I don't have time to get into this this morning, but it's a good study. The first time he drives them out, is at the beginning of his public ministry. And his statement is this, you have made my father's house a den of thieves. The second time he drives them out is at the end of his three and a half year ministry, and his statement is this, you have made my house a den of thieves. You want a little problem to work out in your Bible? Find out why he called it my father's house there and my house here. I'll keep you busy for about six months. It's things like that that you got to look for. And beside the point, not to get off into that, but temple worship has now turned into a, a whole, uh, just a mess. And Jesus is driving them out of the temples. And I'll tell you, there again you find the same parallels. Israel had brought from 606 B.C., had brought all the pagan things into the church that were absolutely, had brought the, I mean the, the Old Testament scenario, and had brought Israel as a nation to her knees. 
And the church did the same thing in 3, 313, 325, whenever you want to mark it up there. Uh, I'll tell you what, I told you before about that verse in Job, who can discover the face of his garment, the watching how the devil works down through history, and watch how history actually points, once you know your Bible, to the very point, for the very time. You can almost put it on your watch when the devil began to destroy the nation of Israel and watch it affect, and then go on this side of the cross and watch him do the same thing to the church. Either way, my friend, God will get the job done with a remnant. He'll get it done with a remnant. Now, today as we stand here, it's even worse. Because it's been, what, 1,800 years since Christ was here? 2,000, really. And there's some great misconceptions today. And, and just, like, just like Israel, I mean, when you look at the Jew out there today, if you'd go somewhere in Kansas City or around the world, and when you start talking like this about God's going to restore the nation of Israel, you get the idea that all the Jews that are around, you know, are all going to come back. And you say, well, I work with some friends. Boy, I'm glad they're going to get restored. Oh, I don't have to witness to them because they're going to get... No, 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 that's not the way it works. Let me just make a blanket statement, and then we'll come back and I'll show you how this thing works. I guarantee you, 98% of the Jews in this planet, 98, almost 100% Jews in America will never be part of that remnant. That's not how it's designed. The Jew today is in such an apostate state. The American Jews are so far out of touch that they will, they will never make it into the tribulation, or I shouldn't say they'll make it into the tribulation, but they'll never make it out of the tribulation. And the church is the same way. You know why I believe, and I, you know, if somebody would have told me this 35 years ago, I wouldn't have believed it. But after watching the church watching pastors, watching God's people, and the way that they relate to the things of God in the Bible, I see absolutely no difference from the apostasy that the nation of Israel is in today to the apostasy the church is in today. I'm going to make a statement. I'm, this is absolutely true, and I've said this before, but I absolutely believe this. I think the only thing that will keep the saved Christians, and I exclude most of you from that, but you look at a round of Christianity, people who claim to be saved, the evangelicals, you know, most Baptists, uh, all the people who believe basically what we believe, but just don't go any farther in their Bible. I believe without a doubt that the only thing that's going to keep the average Baptist church in this country and the average evangelical in this country, the only thing that's going to keep them from going right along with the Antichrist till it was too late will be the rapture of the church. I used to think the rapture of the church was to get me out of here. I believe the rapture of the church is a twofold point at this time. I believe it's to get me out of here and to keep the church from following right into where the Antichrist is going. And you say, well, how do you say that? You know why I say that? Let me tell you something. If you're dumb enough to believe his Bible and take it into your church now, and you can't discern the right Bible, how are you going to discern the right Christ? The Baptist church will follow him right down the line. But you know what God does? God doesn't have the tribulation period for you and for me. That's for Israel. So what God does, He yanks our chain out of here and, uh, and pulls us out before it happens. But hey, it doesn't, it doesn't take a lead brick to fall on me to realize that the body of Christ would follow Him right down the line. They would not be able to tell the difference because they can't tell the difference of what Bible they've got this morning. It's so clear to me, it's unbelievable. And the American Jews are so far out of touch that they will never make it 
through the tribulation period. The devil has done his work just like he's done the work in the church today. And in both cases, only a remnant. Only a remnant. And that's why I tell you, and I say this, and I know some of you just think I say it for theatrics, or you just say I say it to make a point. Hey, let me tell you something. I absolutely believe this. I believe it probably more than I tell you I believe it. I believe, you, believe it to the point where it absolutely keeps me awake at night. I believe it to the point where it scares the fire out of me. But I believe it to the point that most, if not all, of God's people out there in the world today who claim they're saved, who claim have some kind of conversion, I don't believe they're saved any more than my two dogs at home. I believe they're victims just like the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel today goes around claiming to be God's people and a Jew, and God's people walk around claiming to be saved. But there's nothing in their lives that says that. And it scares me to death. It scares me to death. Because I think I, I see people who, who claim uh, to be saved all around this country. And there's absolutely no proof. The attitude, they say I'm a Christian, but the attitude that comes out of them is not conducive with Christianity. I don't know how to reconcile that. If the Bible really meant when it says that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things become new. Then at the end of the day, how do you get saved and then continually live the lifestyle that the world lives? And you see, the problem is this. We've had what now, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of that kind of sickening generation of Christianity that we don't understand the real deal that in the Philadelphian church age when a person got saved, his life really changed. But we have no examples of it. Oh, it's a scary thing to me. It's a scary thing to me. The devil has done his work with the church today just like he's done with the nation of Israel. If you went to a Jewish church just today, this morning, or a Jewish Bible study, if they have them, you'll find a number of interesting things. Now, in your Bible right there, in the Old Testament, your Old Testament is built on what is called the Masoretic Text, the Masoretic text is the only true text that the Old Testament can be built on. When the King James translators and all of the early translators translated the Old Testament, they translated it from what we call the Masoretic text. Now, what is that? The Masoretic text is a text that has been uh, down through the years. In fact, it, 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 it started probably pre-Maccabee time, somewhere be, like maybe 700 B.C., and run all the way up to uh, 17, 1800 in there. A group of Jews known as the Masoretes, their job was to make sure that the Word of God and the pronunciation of the Word of God was absolutely textbook. That nothing was out of kilter. That everything was exactly the way it was supposed to be. In other words, these Jews, even though they're a long way from God, God used them to keep the Old Testament from being corrupted. When Origen gets the Old Testament around 100 and takes it down to Alexandria and comes up with the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, it was the Masoretic Jews that held the line with that true text and preserved for you and for me a pure Old Testament 
which we know today as the Masoretic Text. If a Jew would use the Masoretic Text, which he claims to have, he would be faced almost every time he turns around with some prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Ah, but here's what happens. Now you watch the parallels to this. And all this is to help give you information so you better understand the nation of Israel. Now the first five books of the Bible that a Jew follows is called the Torah. Sometimes they're referenced as one book. And the Masoretic text was the text that they followed. And that is the right text. You cannot read a Masoretic text in your Bible, in English, and not see Christ popping out, second coming, first coming, everywhere. The prophecies about a virgin in Isaiah, over and over. You can't miss the prophecy in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, about the seed of the woman. Some Jew, God's Spirit would take that and say to the Jew, who is that seed? But let me show you what they did. Let me show you what the devil did through them. In times... The Jews took the Old Testament Masoretic text and they replaced it. The first thing they replaced it with was a book called the Midrash. What is the Midrash? The Midrash is a book of interpretations of the books of the Bible. In other words, the rabbi sat down, read the book in the Old Testament Masoretic text, and then wrote the Midrash, which told them really what the book was all about and what the book really uh, in, w- interpreted should be. So a priest today doesn't, or a, a rabbi today, doesn't teach out of the Masoretic text. He teaches out of the Midrash. He takes the book that they wrote that interprets what the Bible says. It'd be a lot like me telling you throw your Bible away and going back and passing out 125 copies of how to study the Bible. And we'd say, this now is your Bible. We're not going to use the Bible anymore. We're going to use this. And that's exactly what the rabbis did. So when a rabbi gets up to teach this morning, he's not teaching out of the Masoretic text. He's teaching out of the Midrash. You know why? Because conveniently, when they wrote the Midrash, they got around all the Old Testament references that point to Christ. See how it works? And then they have what they call the Talmud. The Talmud is a commentary, an interpretation of the law made up by, again, the rabbis. And you'll notice that all of these books, all of these added books, take place after the captivity of 606 when they're scattered and it all comes up and they add these things to their religion to destroy their religion. The Talmud is a commentary, again, for the last 2,600 years has been added all the garbage in it. Then they have a book called the Meshua. It's legal codes of interpretation also made up by the rabbis. So when a Jew goes to the synagogue on Saturday, when he goes to the synagogue to hear the Bible, he doesn't hear the Masoretic text. He doesn't hear the Bible. He hears the books that the rabbis have written to get around the clear teachings that will point them every time to Jesus Christ and the second coming of Christ. Do you see the parallels? The devil did that with the nation of Israel and took the Masoretic text from them and replaced it with a corrupt set of books. And then he turned around and said, now I'm going to take the pure New Testament from the Christians and I'm going to replace it with a corrupt set of texts. 
Me figuring that out probably qualifies me to be president. What's so hard about that? What's so hard about that? And that's why I'm telling you. That's why I'm telling you. If Jesus Christ doesn't come down and pull the church out of here, the church will walk right down the road and when the Antichrist shows up, they'll say, wow, here it is. You know why? Because if they cannot discern what I just told you about Bible-believing churches using the devil's Bible, how in the world are they going to discern the true Christ if you can't discern his word? The deception is clear. And just like he corrupted the Old Testament Jew from the Masoretic text by a set of new corrupt books, he took the New Testament from the true church of Jesus Christ and put it, replaced it with a corrupt set of books. And that's where we're at. It's an inc- and that's why I'm telling you, most of the Jews will not make it. But at the same time, I'm telling you, and boy, you better get it down. You better get it down. You better start seeing it and understanding it. I don't think most of God's people are going to make it either. That's a terrible thing for me to say. It grieves me to my heart. You don't know how I wrestle with that thing when I look it out and I see God's people in his easy believism. When I see God's people that just get saved and then just want to live their life any way they want to. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. That's why the Bible says, try the spirits. You want to find out where somebody's at? Try the spirits. Try the spirits. Now, all that leads us to another great passage here. And, well, there's so much in these first five verses. But let's look back at Romans 11 now in verses 2 and 3. It says, God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Watch ye not what the Scripture saith of Elias. Now, that's Elijah. But I know there's Elisha, there's Elisha and there's Elijah. And this spelling here doesn't look like Elijah. But it is Elijah because of the difference between going from the Hebrew spelling to the English and from the Greek spelling to the English. So that's, it's Elijah. How he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Now here it comes. Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars. And I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? And here comes the answer. I reserved to myself 7,000 men that have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Now, that's a, just, that, that is an absolutely megaton passage. The reference here, if you know anything about the Bible at all, you know is in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18. Notice verse 18, 666. And you're going to find at 1 Kings 18 and 1 Kings 19 are the key verses about the story of Elisha and what takes place. And he says there, Yet have I left seven, me 7,000 in Israel, all knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. Now, if you'd go back to 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 19, and you don't have to do it if you don't want to, you can, but I suggest you put these notes back in at some point. Let me tell you what you got here during this time. This is one of these times that uh, Israel, if you know your Bible basics class, were in the demise of the nation of Israel. In fact, I think that this king was one of the kings that I listed on your chart as we slid down into the captivity of 606. I think I mentioned Ahab. Ahab, without a doubt, is the wickedest king that Israel ever had. And you need to learn about Ahab, and you need to see and understand why Paul used it here 
in Romans chapter 11 with a restoration of the nation of Israel and a remnant getting saved and then ran us back to 1 Kings chapter 18 and 1 Kings chapter 19. During this time, the nation of Israel is in deep apostasy through the religion of Baal worship. Baal worship has infected the nation of Israel in an incredible way. Israel right now is being run by a king, as I said, named Ahab. Ahab has a wife. His wife is what we call a Zidonian in the Bible in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 21. A Zidonian was one of the Baal-worshipping nations that were prevalent during this time. His wife's name is Jezebel. Now, I'll give you something else in the Bible. Notice her name, Jezebel. 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 The last part of her name is Bel. That's Baal. You want to watch words in the Bible that end, or names in the Bible, or words in the Bible that end in Baal. Balaam. Say, Baalak. Say, um, you want to watch words. Baal Peor. That's a place. You want to watch people's names that have the connection with B E L at the end, or B A L, or somewhere in it is connection with Baal. Now, here's what you got in the Old Testament historical sense Ahab's a king. Jezebel is his wife. Jezebel is a prophetess. She's a religious preacher. She's your first charismatic in the Bible. And she comes to the place where because she's his wife, he deals with the political side of things. She deals with the religious side of things. She sets the religious tone. He sets the political tone. And in that, and we're going to see it in a moment, you have a picture of the Antichrist and Ahab and the Roman Catholic Church in Jezebel, the great whore of Revelation chapter 17 and 18. And the Bible says that she's a spiritual prophetess. She's called the Queen of Heaven in the book of Jeremiah. And together they have kicked God out and His Word out and replaced it with the Old Testament satanic Baal worship. Now, there's two priests that are contemporaries during this time. You need to know this. Both of them are my favorite guys. One of them is Elijah. The other one is Micaiah. Now, the story here is focused on Elijah, but Micaiah is also a counterpart and He's a great guy too. And they're the prophets who have the nasty job of preaching God's Word in a world to God's people who don't want to hear it. And there's some great lessons in that for you, especially if you're ever going to get into the ministry. The farther we go that Jesus doesn't come back, the less God's people really want to hear the truth. You know what they want? They want a church without any, they want preaching without any conviction. They want to come to church on Sunday morning but not leave feeling bad about anything. They want, a, they, want a, they, they, want a, they want a church that has no accountability. They want a lifestyle that they can drink, they can go where they want to go, do what they want to do, have their wine coolers, have their wine, have their beer, have everything they want, and still go to church on Sunday morning and feel good about themselves. That's the church of Jesus Christ today. And they will not tolerate you ever getting into the pulpit and... and giving them a conviction, a spirit of conviction. There'll never be any accountability to the Word of God. They want, they want a lifestyle as a Christian where they can do whatever they want to do and still feel good about it. That is the set, that is the mindset of the nation of Israel. That's what Ahab and Jezebel brought to the party. They brought a lifestyle that we still believe in God, we still love God, and actually God had been replaced with Baal, and everything that goes along with it. And when Elijah and Micaiah show up, they throw a wet blanket on the party. And as a preacher of the gospel in the 21st century, 
I guarantee you, young man, if you ever get to the place where you ever pastor or you ever are in a situation where you're preaching and teaching wherever you may go in America, I guarantee you, you will be the wet blanket on Christians' parties today. And that's why these two guys are two of my favorite heroes. I mean, they're incredible guys. And it's much like it is today. Now, in chapter 18, and we want to turn now back. We've got to see this. In chapter 18, let's go back to chapter 18. In chapter 18, we have the great contest. And I love this. To me, a lot of the Old Testament, even though a lot of ways it was harder, a lot of ways I think it was better. This is one of them. Because today in churches, you can argue back and forth of who's right and who's wrong. Back then, you just got two swords and thrashed it out. I like that. Because here's the problem. Jezebel, who is a religious prophetess, has 400 prophets of Baal. Elijah's all by himself. And Elijah takes on 450 prophets of Baal one-on-one. And what he does through that is bring about a great concept to the nation of Israel who were caught up in all of this. And I have a little note in my study Bible around here that says at the top, the shootout at the OK Corral. They go, that's what you got. Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but last Thursday night, many of you had your first encounter with the prophets of Baal. And uh, we had nine Church of Christ people show up. And they, uh, one of them works with Zach, and uh, um, they uh, come to the point where uh, that Zach, one of them had been hitting on Zach and trying to, you know, they saw Zach, what, like they all do, they saw a great fine young man, and, and uh, they, they thought to themselves, this is, exactly, and this is exactly what they do. So they go after Zach, and Zach played it cool. And Zach played it dumb. And Zach just listened to the guy and talked to the guy and asked the guy a few questions. And then Zach basically uh, asked me, he said, uh, is it okay if, if I just tell them that they can come to Thursday night Bible study and get any question they want to ask? And I said, sure, absolutely. And so Zach went back and I said, just play it down. Play it stupid. Play it down. So Zach went back and he says, well, you know what? We have a Bible study on Thursday night. And I asked my pastor, he we asked any question you want to ask. He said he'd love to have you come in and ask some questions. I mean, they jumped on that like ugly on an ape. <laughs> I went last Thursday night, nine of them showed up. Now, let me just say this. I have an agenda behind everything I do. And when I had a group like that come in, I want to use that as a teaching tool. And if you notice how it went that night, uh, I just knew how long, I was counting the seconds, how many questions we would get in before somebody brought up Acts 2.38. And uh, what was the second question? Somebody asked the first question about something, and the next question, Acts 2.38, was the guy asked, the guy with the Elvis Presley sunglasses, he asked, uh, in the afro, he asked, uh, he asked, uh, you know, what, it, well, what do you believe about Acts 2.38?
And at that point, I knew we were off to the races. And off we were. Now, here's the bottom line. This coming Thursday night, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a debriefing. After every good military operation, you need to have a debriefing. <laughs> I'm going to show you why I did what I did the way I did. I want to show you how by what I did, I got them to expose to us their weaknesses. And then at the same time, I'm gonna, we're going to go through and I'll teach you about everything that they know about or they follow through on. And then we're going to go back and then I'm gonna, we're going to talk about, because they're coming back. They went with such a nice warm feeling. I mean, they went out of here like, uh, and I, that one guy, he actually said he's praying for my salvation. I think that was the nicest thing anybody's ever said to me. And then the other guy, he said, I think God's using you. And I said, well, that's nice. I said, there's some people in my church that would give you an argument about that. But uh, you know what? Uh, yeah, thank you for that. Thank you for that. And uh, you notice how I ended it. I gave uh, him five, ten minutes to close out the thing. And the reason why I did that is because I wanted you to hear from his own mouth where he went in light of what we had all talked about. And if you're not, if you're any kind of paying attention at all, you now should know and see where their weakness was. And we're going to come back next Thursday night. We're going to, we're going to debrief. We're going to look at that whole thing. So if you haven't, if you didn't, if, just to refresh your memory, if you haven't got a tape of it, get a tape of it and go through it again this week. And then that Thursday night when you come back, we will debrief everything. And then what we're going to do is we're going to take the guys and, and let them come to the point where they go home, they go to work on the weak points. And then when they come back in the next time, because he's going to call me. He got my card, got my number, gave me his, and he wants to call me because I know exactly what they're thinking. They're thinking, wow, you know what? We can win these guys over. The next time they come in, I ain't even getting in it. You'll have the ammunition. You'll have it. And, and whether you know it or not, what you got in last night or last Thursday night, which is good. You know, in the military and the special forces groups, I don't know if you know this or not, but what they do in the, in the military and special forces groups and Navy SEALs and all that, once they get you through your training and get you up to the point, they'll send you someplace. It's kind of like your final initiation. They'll send you someplace in the world where there's a conflict. And it's a very top secret thing. And they'll send you someplace in the world, drop you in in an A-team or however they're going to do it. They'll put you in there for one reason. That is so you can kill somebody. They call it being bloodied. Sometimes they call it trigger time. And they're going to put you in a scenario in some foreign country that you never heard about or nobody ever hears about, put you in as an insurgency team. You go in with some hardcore leadership, and you go in for the purpose of getting bloodied. That's exactly what happened to you Thursday night. You got bloodied. And you got some bayonet practice. You got a little trigger time. But at the same time, you got the... And I, I was absolutely impressed. You know what? If you notice their whole concept was one of arrogancy... Notice how arrogant they were? Every young man that got up had a confidence and an authoritative confidence about themselves when they spoke the scriptures that they couldn't even match. And I'll tell you what, it was, it was, it was exactly what I was looking for. Exactly. Nothing will make you and get you in tune and in touch better with how to deal with these things. You need, and many times you hear me say it, and because I say it from the pulpit so many times, I think it goes in one ear and out the other. But Thursday night you've got a reality of what I mean when I'm talking about knowing how to use your weapon. Now, if we were in the Old Testament back then, I wouldn't have used my Bible. I'd have pulled out a sword and I'd have been still hacking them to pieces. 
That's the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. I hacked them to pieces. Anyhow, I just used that sword instead of a real one. See? You need to learn how to use the sword. You need to learn how to get into a sword drill with somebody like that, know where he's going, know what they're going to say before they say it, and know how to head them off at the pass. And i got to tell you, I got at it for you guys what I wanted, everything and more, and still got the opportunity to have them come back again. Now, there was a pretty good spirit here last Thursday night. Be prepared, because I guarantee you this. The next time it goes down, you will not see that spirit. Because it'll be the last shot, and we'll take it. And we'll take it. But it was an incredible, incredible, incredible concept. And I was never, you know, there's very few things. I mean, you know, you're in the ministry, and you're working with people. And we go through things, and we do things. And there's always a lot of crap you've got to put up with in any ministry, in any church. There's always a lot of issues and all those stuff. And, you know, you, you, you just keep plugging away and plugging away and plugging away. And you meet one-on-one. And you do Thursday night and do Saturday morning and do all the things. But you know what? The thing that makes it to me as a pastor that what you're doing is making a difference and is exactly what I'm looking for is what I saw Thursday night. Young men that stood up, took the action, took the affirmative, and went right after them. Not one guy. We even had a guy in there. He's in the nursery. He's only been saved for about six months, and he took him on. Yes, he did. He did. He did. And that's exactly what I'm looking for. You know what you're doing is working. When you see the men, and I guarantee you, ladies, next time you can jump in too. They brought two of their ladies, take them on the parking lot, beat the fire out of them. I don't care. (laughs) I was proud of you. Proud of you. And that's exactly the kind of church I'm looking to build. And I was proud of you. Now this thing about Ahab and the prophets of Baal. Now look at this thing. You've got to see this. This will mean more to you since last Thursday night than it will be, you know, since then. Because now you have a, you have a point of reference. You actually know and have been in a combat with some prophets of Baal. We'll, we'll, you know everything you need to know about church Christ. And then when we're done with them, we're going to bring in the Jehovah Witnesses. Then we're going to bring in the morons. <laughs> my favorite one will be when we bring the Charismatics in. That'll be my favorite one. They're all going to get a signed copy of my book, Charismatic Movement. <clears throat> all right, now look at this thing over here in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17. Now watch this. And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah. That Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord. And here it comes, and thou hast followed Balaam. Now you see it didn't Baal there, it's Balaam. Now that's a great key because that runs you back all the way to Numbers, doesn't it? Remember Balaam? Remember the, in the Bible, the doctrine of Balaam, the way of Balaam, and the heir of Balaam, three things about that? Well, there you are, right there. That's a study in itself. Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal, 450, and the prophets of the groves, 400. Well, you got 850 total, which did eat at Jezebel's table. Ah. So Ahab sent all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? For if the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I, only remain a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. 
Let them therefore give us two bullocks, and let them choose one bullock for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on wood, and put it no fire under. And I will dress the other bullock, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under. And when you call on the name of your gods, I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves, and dress it first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your gods, but put no fire under. And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it, and called on the name of Baal from morning even to noon, uh, saying, O Baal, hear us. Uh, there was no voice, and all that answered, and they leaped upon the altar which was made. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either is he talking, or is he pursuing, or is he on a journey, or preventually he sleepeth and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manna with knives and lances till the blood gushed out upon them. And it came to pass that midday was past that the prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice there was neither voice nor any answer uh, nor any that regarded. And Elijah uh, said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And when the stones were built, an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the uh, altar, uh, which is great, could contain two measures of sealed, seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bullock in pieces, and laid him on the wood. And he said, Fill four barrels of water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice, and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time, and did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time, and did it a third time. And the water ran down around about the altar and filled the trench also with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering, at the evening sacrifice, that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I, I am thy servant, and I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me that this people may know that thou art the Lord, God that hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is uh, the God, the God, He is, uh, Lord, He is God. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kish, uh, Kishon and slew them there. Now that's a great passage. And that's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I like the Old Testament. I mean, I know there's some tough things in it, but getting to kill people that don't like you has always been a good idea with me. <laughs> and uh, the first thing I want you to notice here before I forget it, down verse 40, and this is a great key here. Notice the brook of Kishon down there. Uh, that, that's, uh, that's, that's very important. If you remember back in Judges 4, that's where Sisera was killed. The book of Kishon down there by, uh, by Megiddo, down there where the second coming of Christ is going to take place. And what you got there is simply this. And I like Elijah. Elijah is a man's man. I, I've always been a gravitated to men and guys who uh, could stand up for what they believed. I guess that's because, spiritually speaking, I was raised by two of the toughest war dogs you ever found in your life, and it must have rubbed off on me. I don't know, but I, I enjoy that. And the first thing I noticed down here is that it says in verse uh, 17 uh, is Abe, Abe, uh, Elijah's directness. Elijah is a fearless man uh, when it comes to this particular point here. Now, I know he has some weak moments later on, but we all have our weak moments. But right here, when he needed to shine, boy, he's shining. And uh, he goes up against the king. He always reminds me of John, of, uh, of John, uh, John Knox. We have a John Knox village out here. Most people don't know that John Knox village is named after the great Presbyterian preacher, John Knox. John Knox was a fearless guy. You know what John Knox did one time? 
he stood before Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary was the queen that, that brought England back under the Roman Catholic jurisdiction and just about butchered and killed everybody. They called her Bloody Mary. Remember, you probably had a drink to her one time in your life at some point. Uh, Bloody Mary was their name because she killed so many Bible-believing Christians. And John, everybody who took a stand against her, she had killed. I mean, she was, didn't earn, she earned a name, Bloody Mary. And old John Knox went before her, was called before her, and old John Knox, and I got a painting of it at home in one of my books, one of my favorite deals. Old John Knox is standing down there, and the picture's got him pointing his bony finger in her face, and he's giving her Hail Columbia, boy, on the blood of Christ and the Roman Catholic Church and all that she's doing, killing God's people. And you know what? He survived. He survived. Elijah always reminded me of John Knox because he's up against the king. Now, when he gets up against the king, I want you to notice what the first thing the king says when he sees Elijah. And this is so true. And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he the trouble of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house and has forsaken the commandments of the Lord and thou hast followed Baal. Puts him right back between the eyes. You ever notice how the people that aren't doing what's right always want to find fault with the people that are doing what's right? That's Ahab, see? Ahab's got Israel deep in Baal worship. Elijah's the guy who's preaching the word of God. And what does Ahab say? Oh, you're the one that's troubling Israel. What's old, Ahab, what's old uh, uh, Elijah say? No, sir, it's you that's troubling Israel. Oh, king, your majesty. <laughs> it's you. One time they brought Micaiah up. And they brought Micaiah in in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 14. In fact, that's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. On my preaching Bible, which I don't use anymore. I got it. I've kind of retired it. But uh, on the front of my thing, I preached that thing from one end of the world to the other. I got 200 messages in that Bible. And on the front of that Bible, years ago when I was just a young kid, and I, I, I knew that I was going to get into some battles, and I put on the front of that thing, I took it to a Bible bookstore and had a guy, you know how you put your name on in gold? I had him emboss this verse in gold. And it's the verse out of 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 14. Oh, Micah says, as the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. I love those guys. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you've troubled Israel. Look at verse 21. This is the shootout, man. I love it. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long ye halt between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him, and if Baal, then follow him. I like that. The preaching Bible, which I don't use anymore. I got it. I've kind of retired it. But uh, on the front of my thing, I preached that thing from one end of the world to the other. I got 200 messages in that Bible. And on the front of that Bible, years ago when I was just a young kid, and I, I knew that I was going to get into some battles, and I put on the front of that thing, I took it to a Bible bookstore, and had a guy, you know how you put your name on in gold? I had him emboss this verse in gold. And it's the verse out of 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 14. Old Micah says, As the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. I love those guys. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you've troubled Israel. Look at verse 21. This is the shootout, man. I love it. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long ye halt between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him, and if Baal, then follow him. I like that. I, I like that a lot. And the people answered him, Not a word. Ah, must be Baptist. Then he then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I alone, remain a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophet are 450 men. Now, I think that's a good thing. Let me tell you something. His courage... In the face of standing against 450 men is admirable to me. Now, I appreciate all of you being here. And I appreciate those that have helped me in ministry. 
And I know, as far as me, the ministry is simple. You get a preacher who God gives a burden, he gives the vision, and then God brings people into that who grab his vision, grab his burden, and then everybody gets together and accomplishes what God wants to do. That's the ministry in a simple form. That's basically what it is. But if you ever pastor someday, always be appreciative of the people that God gives you that grabs your heart and grabs your aspect of ministry and wants to do something for God with you. Always be appreciative of that. But don't come to the point where you ever think at the end of the day when push comes to shove that it still won't just be you and God. Just as Israel couldn't hang on to all their numbers, you as a pastor or a religious teacher or somebody who teaches the Bible or in charge of some ministry, you cannot take satisfaction. You cannot take comfort in the fact that you got a whole bunch of people in your church that believe what you do. So when push comes to shove with the world, the flesh or the devil or the Ahabs or the prophets of Baals, you can fall back on them. You ought to be in such with the Word of God that you ought to go through your life that in actuality, at the end of the day, it's just going to be you and God, and that's enough. I appreciate everybody else. I appreciate it. But the truth of the matter is, if it be known, if you don't want to come here today, you don't have to come. If you don't want to be part of the ministry, you don't have to be part of it. If next week nobody shows up but me, I'll say a word, sit out and enjoy it, get back up and preach it again, and I'll do it by myself. But I'm going to do it. And you need to develop the determination and yet to use that sword. There was a confidence there. 450 to 1. I mean, let me ask you a question. If you went someplace and there was nine guys waiting to nail you, get a little nervous? Didn't bother me one bit. You know what? Because at the end of the day, I'm right where he is. If my God is not better than his God, if God has to depend on me to do this, he's in trouble. And I think we're the saddest, the picture, the, the most terrible. Look, at I look around the world today, and I think, you know how I know that this world and Christianity is such a mess? Because God's got to depend on a guy like me to believe his book. Let me tell you something. You better get set in your mind that as we get closer to this, it may just come down to you and God. And the things you have to face, the things you have to deal with, the things you have to come up against, the only thing that's going to get you there is believing that book that God gave you and you and God making up the majority. And when there's 20 of them or 30 of them or 450 of them, it's almost equal. Almost. Almost. You better get the idea in your head with what's coming down for America and what's coming down. It's nice to be here today. And it's nice to have everybody loving God today. But you know what? The way this country is in upheaval and the way it's changing, this could go away as quickly as it started. And you better be able to fend for yourself spiritually and you better learn how to protect yourself with that sword and quit sniveling around like you're some kind of little panty waist and get in that book, get your head out of wherever it is and realize where you're at on God's clock and what needs to be done before he gets back because you might just be stuck in a bad situation. And I'm not saying that any other reason because it's true. You know what? When your parents were, when you were young and your parents tried to tell you what life was really like, did you listen? Did you? 
When they said, no, you can't take the car tonight, and you didn't understand why I'm through a hissy fit, did you listen? Did not you think that you were a lot smarter than they were? I did. When I was 18 years old, I thought my parents were the dumbest people in the world. And when I was 21, I couldn't find out how they got smart so fast. There's, thing, there's people in your world who know more about life than you do, starting with your parents. Whether they're good parents or bad parents, saved or lost, they have a, perspe- a perception of life that young people don't have. Young people think they're invisible. I was at the fitness center the other day, and I had my 101st Airborne uh, jacket on that I just wear when it was cold in the morning. And uh, I was walking out, getting ready to go home, and I walking by a guy in the machine, didn't even pay attention. And he said, hey, he said, you in the 101st? And I looked over, and I said, yeah, I was in the 101st. He says, when? I said, 68. He said, I was in the 82nd and 65. And he got off the machine and came over, you know, and he was, he was about my age, you know, maybe a little bit older. And uh, we talked for a little bit, and he says, isn't it incredible how to back then we thought we were invincible, we could whip the world? And I said, yeah, but I said, that's your chain, didn't it? And he laughed, and he said, yeah. And that's the way it is. See? You're young. You got your strength. You can play football well. You can run all day long. You can high jump. You can shoot baskets. Because you got that strength, you think you're something. But you know what your problem is? You ain't got any sense. The Bible lays it. The Bible says that, that uh, they got people who have, who, the young people have, have, uh, have heat, but they have no light. The old people have light, but they have no heat. You got to find a balance in the middle. Somebody's out there, come on, look at me, I can weigh this. Yeah, yeah, look at that. Boy, look at me go. Yeah, watch me make a touchdown. Watch this. Watch this. Wow, I can do everything. Watch me hit this ball out there. Yeah, and in your own life, you're a disaster. Why? Because you got no sense. And you won't listen to anybody that's got some sense. Wouldn't listen to your parents. Wouldn't listen to anybody in school. Wouldn't listen to your teachers. That's where you're at. Then Elijah said unto the people, I only am a remain a prophet of the, of, uh, uh, of the Lord. But Baal's prophet are 450. Get used to standing by yourself. Because you may have to do it someday. Now look at verse 24. He says, you guys go first. He says, let's find out who God really God. You get your offering down there, put it on down there. And uh, he says, uh, will the first God that speaks by fire, that's who everybody will follow. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, choose you one bullet. Go ahead first, he says. And they dressed it. And the Bible says in verse 26 that they called from Baal morning even to noon. Now that's very significant because the key part of Baal worship was the worship of the sun, remember? And the sun is its highest place at the zenith at noon. And that's when, they had the, that's when they had their main service. Kind of like noon mass with a starburst behind the altar with a little round sun-shaped wafers. And so they started in the morning and at noon they thought, surely the fire will come at noon because the sun god is right overhead looking straight down on us and here it comes. And they cry, Oh, Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar. And it came to pass at noon. See, everything centers around noon. 
Eli mocked them. Oh, he didn't have the sweet spirit of Christ, did he? Oh, imagine one Christian mocking another person's religion. Oh. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Notice small g-o-d. That's a, that's a derogatory statement if he ain't figured it out. Either he's talking. Maybe he's on the cell phone. Can't get to you right now. Keep calling. Keep going. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he's on vacation taking a trip. Or pre-adventure. Maybe he's asleep and must be awakened. Look at verse 28. And they cried loud and cut themselves after the manner with knives and lances till the blood gushed out upon them. And it came to pass when midday that they prophesied until the time of the offering and the evening sacrifice. That'd be six o'clock. And neither voice nor any answer. And Elisha said unto all the people, Okay, enough time for this fooling around. Come here. Now, we gave these big boys a shot. They can't do squat. Now let's see who God's got. Go get four barrels of water. Dump it on that sacrifice. Dump it on again. Dump it on again. Fill them up again and dump it on again. I want to make sure that when God comes down and does this, nobody's going to say Elijah had a trick going on here. That he had a flamethrower, or he had a big lighter, or he had this, or he soaked it with gasoline. Make sure it's water. Put it on four times. Fill it up. Fill the trench. Then I'm going to stand over here. And as soon as he got out of the way, boy, that old heavens cracked and the fire came down. And you know what? I love it. Not only did it burn up the, burn up the sacrifice, it burned up the rocks. It burned up the water. It burned up the dirt. It burned up everything. Now, doctrine of this story, there's a reason why he picked this story for Romans chapter 11. Because this story is a picture of the tribulation period. And it's a picture of God calling out a remnant from the end of the tribulation period that is steeped in the Baal worship of the New Testament. And that's why he chose this for uh, the verse that he put in there about prophets of Baal, 7,000 prophets not bowing knee to Baal out of 1 Kings chapter 18. Because it's dealing in both cases one prophetically and the other in, in a, a historically dealing with the restoration of the nation of Israel. Because here's what you got, Ahab. In your Old Testament, you have 18 types of the Antichrist, 18 men. 18 men throughout the Old Testament that foreshadow the coming man of sin. Ahab is one of them. Ahab represents the Antichrist. You know what the name Ahab means? It means brother of his father. Stop, think about that for a moment in light of 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 18. You see, the key thing of Baal worship was sex. And if you know anything about the pagan religion of Baal worship, you know you got the moon's the female deity, you got the sun that's the, uh, the male deity, and they chase each other around the sky. And then when they have their solar eclipses or whatever, then they have a union, see? To them, that meant orgy time. But the sex got so perverted, if you know the Old Testament, that they didn't limit it to just, to just men and women. It was men with men, women with women. It was men with animals. It was men, women with animals. It was men with boys and girls. It didn't matter it, it, where it went. And, it, and in some cases, it was even incest with their own family. Everybody knows the story of David and Goliath, don't you? Yeah, big old Goliath down there. But most people don't know the story of David and Goliath when it says in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 18, that uh, David and Goliath had four brothers. And then names them. 
Then you go to a place over there in Chronicles where it says David had four sons and it names them and they're the same boys. You see, Goliath fathered his own sons from his own mother. And in doing so, come to the place where they were his sons, but they were also his brothers. He was mother. Isn't it strange that the name Ahab means? Brother of his father? Better pay attention to your Bible. Then you have Jezebel, Ahab's wife, the Zidonian queen. She's a picture of the religion. Israel's in total Baal worship, just like now and throughout history, and will be in the tribulation period. Elijah, he's the man of God. <clears throat> in Revelation chapter 11, you have two men that come back to help restore the nation of Israel in the tribulation period, typified by Ahab and Jezebel. You know who it is? Moses is one, Elijah's the other. Revelation chapter 11. Every place you go, he's the man of God. He's one of the two witnesses who come down and lead the remnant out at the end of the tribulation period. You see, now that's why learning your Bible, Paul used the reference to 1 Kings 18 and 19 in his passage in Romans chapter 11. He wants to show you that if you get a principle in the New Testament, Romans chapter 11, there's a story in the Old Testament that illustrates in a story the principle. And that's what you've got. Both passages that deal with the same event. One of them is the principle involved, that'd be Romans chapter 11. The other one's a story that lays out the principle in great detail, that'd be 1 Kings 18 and 19. It's the key to understanding your Bible. All the New Testament principles that teach a great truth will be illustrated by a story, or in some cases several stories, in the Old Testament. And they'll go hand in hand. The Old Testament story, the revival, will be laid out, or the uh, story of the revival in the New Testament principles. The Jews today in this age, they have a choice. They've had that choice from Acts 7 up to the rapture. They can either live under the law and die and go to hell, or they can live under the New Testament as a child of God and go to heaven after they get saved. Prophetically, these verses teach the salvation of the nation of Israel in the tribulation period, Romans 11 and the Old Testament passages. Elijah shows up in Revelation chapter 11 with Moses. The Antichrist requires the Jew in the tribulation to bow down to an image and kiss it, or they will die. Revelation 12, 13, 1 Kings 18, 19, Daniel chapter 1, 2, and 3. In the tribulation, the church is gone. It's raptured out of Revelation chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That Jew has to flee Jerusalem. We saw it last week, Matthew chapter 24. Has to endure unto the end. Favorite verse of our water dogs the other night uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 24. They are two groups of people saved in the tribulation period. The Gentiles, Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 10, and the Jews, Matthew chapter 24. They both make up a remnant. In that day, a man is saved by trusting Christ not as his personal Savior, but as a Messiah, and being baptized in the concepts of Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Another verse the water dogs couldn't get straightened out the other night. And you see, my friend, this is why, and you need to understand, because if they worship the Antichrist in his image and take his mark or his number, it's a sure ticket to hell. But in both cases, the Jew and the Gentile come out of the tribulation as a remnant. And this is what he wants us to see in the first five verses as we enter into Romans chapter 11. That Israel is going to be saved, but there's only going to be a remnant. And if, if it's a remnant for Israel, 
<laughs> let me tell you something. If you ain't figured out the great consistency of the Bible yet, if it's a remnant for Israel and all down through the history of the Bible, God has done what He's done through a remnant. I'm telling you one last time and then I'm done. You can do with it whatever you want. But the bottom line is this. If God brings back and only delivers a remnant out of the tribulation period of the Jew, I guarantee you there will only be a remnant the rapture of the church out of the, out of the, out of the church. Now, I'm not somebody that believes what that some people teach, you know, that not all the saved people are going to go. No, no, no. I go much farther than that. I'm telling you that most of the people that say they're saved are not saved. They're caught up in religious Christianity just like the Jews are caught up in the apostasy of the nation of Israel. They both have the same Bibles. They both have the same stuff. They both have corrupted themselves the same way, and they both run around with some kind of arrogancy like they know when they're on, and they're always picking, pointing their fingers at the ones who are doing what's right when they're not doing what's right. I'm telling you, learn how to use the sword. Um, I want you to leave you with two things today in, in opening up this chapter. And there are two things that you, you, better, you better keep your head on a swivel of what's going on around in the world. You better begin to understand that you're living in a day and age where you're not the smartest light bulb in the box if you're out of fellowship with God on a continual basis today. You better get it tidied up. You better cross your T's and dot your I's. I'm telling you, just like Elijah told the nation of Israel, there is a God and He is God and His plan is the only plan and He is coming. And you better not be found with anything in your world and in your life that doesn't line up with what He wants you to do. And you need to learn to use that weapon. I'm going to tell you one more time and then I'm done with this. You may have to stand alone. And very frankly, if you had to stand alone today by yourself, I mean no mommy, no daddy, no preacher to call on the phone, you had to gird it up and stand it on your own, that you had to face the onslaught of everything that comes down on you and on your family, if you had to deal with it and deal with it on your own, no church, no Bible, nothing, no, everything you've got now depends on what you had done with the time you had to do it and you didn't get it done. We live in a dream world, people. We live in a dream world in Christianity. And nothing makes me more sick to my stomach than looking at the average Christian in America today. I don't care about the struggles that people have. We all have our struggles. You know what bothers me? It's the attitude that saved people don't give a flip of what God did for them. And don't do anything with that Bible. And I tell you this, and then I am done. Laodicean church period. Philadelphia, Sardis, Thyatira, Pergamos, Sardis, Ephesus. Keep one last thing in mind, ladies and gentlemen. Every one of them paid a price for what they believed. Every one of them faced the onslaught of the most murderous, butcherous, bloodiest situation that you don't even have a clue on. Every one of them didn't have a church like you have. They didn't have a Bible. Well, back there in the dark ages, there was one Bible for every 10,000 people. And those people learned to stand. Those people took a stand. Those people took a stand in a day and age when they didn't have a pastor. They didn't have a church. Many times they were on their own without a Bible. And many times they could get maybe a page of the Bible for two or three hours and they'd run behind a barn someplace and write it down or try to memorize it. That's what they had for a Bible. And we have what we have. 
And every one of them paid a price for what they believed except the last one, the Laodicean, you and me. Now, we got one or two things going here, boys and girls, and I'll let you be the judge. It's either going to go just like this or it's going to go just like this. Either it's going to go where God is so fed up with us and so sick with us and so, and Bible says that he spews the angel. We're the only church out of those seven that has no representing angel before the throne of God. It may be that God is so fed up with us and so sick with what we've done with his word and what we've done with his church and what we've done and the attitudes we get and, the, and our lackadaisical, uh, all that God has given us and how we just take it for granted. It may just simply be that God's going to come down and jerk us out of here and we just stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And I mean we are all in a mess. Or it may be that God's sitting up in heaven right now looking at us and saying to himself, what makes you so special? Why should all they pay a price for what they have and you get through scot-free? He may just love you. Hey, when you were a parent raising your children, wasn't there times when you did things to your children that they didn't like, that you did it for their own good, even though it was hard for them to deal with at the time? Did you not do that? If you didn't, you're not a very good parent. Well, what makes you think if you then know how to give, give good to your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things unto them that ask Him? If you can be a parent in a sinful state, even though you're saved, and realize that sometimes you have to do hard things to your children to get them to do the right thing, and, and at the end result is better, what if He's looking at us the same way and He says, I love you, you know what? I'm not going to let you stand before the judgment seat of Christ empty. I'm going to put you through the fire. Why are you any better than anybody else? Why are you any better than all of the ones that died in the arena and died at the stake and died down through history? Why do you have such an arrogant attitude that you think you're the only one and you don't need to serve me and church is just a big fun time so you can go play your games and do what you want to do and have fun and still call yourself a Christian? You know what you need? We need a good dose of getting back to what a Christian really has to get back to. And what if he puts us through it? What if this church doesn't exist someday down the line? What if you have to raise your family and stand for your own in the world? Why, some of you can't even do it now with all that we have here. You can't go three days without folding up like a broken accordion. What are you going to do in the day when you have nothing? What are you going to do when you have no pastor to call? What are you going to do when you have no Bible study to come to? What are you going to do when you have nobody discipling? What are you going to do when you have nobody and you have to now stand on your own? And you look back and you realize that God gave you what? Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years to get your feet on the ground? He bore you out and put you into the place and gave you everything that you would have never to be able to stand so you could do something in the last days. And now at the end of this thing, you fold up, I fold up, the whole thing folds up. Why? Because we, we just threw away every opportunity that God had. Because of what? A Softball league? Volleyball? A golf tournament? All of the things we got involved in that were more important? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But the bottom line is this. Where is your agenda this morning of what God's called you to do? You can think whatever you want to think, and you can say after you leave here whatever you want to say. I'm telling you right now, as Elijah and as Micaiah told the nation of Israel all the way back in 1 Kings, he's coming, and when he's coming, he's coming with a vengeance. And you're living in a day and age where you better get your head out of your rear end or wherever it's at, and you better realize that you better not be found playing the games when your Lord comes back. That's my advice to you. My advice to me. I cannot in my mind 
It, it, it insults everything that I am for God to give me a job to do, even if I do it badly, even if I screw it up from one end to the other. But the thing that bothered me is for God or anybody to give me something to do and then count on me to do it and then for me just to blow it off. Oh, I forgot. Oh, I got busy. Oh, I had this. Oh, I had that. I had that. I can't in myself, I cannot reconcile to myself God giving to me something to do and then me just blowing it off because I got something better to do. I'm telling you all that to get you ready for what's coming in Romans chapter 11 and what's coming around this world today. And if you can't see it, and it, the thing that bothers me is God's people that see it and it doesn't bother them. Doesn't bother them. Doesn't bother them if people that they're friends with are dying and going to hell. Doesn't bother them that maybe their own kids or their own family are lost without Christ. Doesn't bother them. All we see is what we want to see. The world is a big playground to us. Where we can have all that we want. That's one of the problems with America. The real strong Christians were never in America. They came out of the Reformation and they come out of the Europe and they come out of the places where the persecution was so strong that gave them a purpose. We are a people without any purpose. And I, I stand up here and I preach to you like I got a purpose. Let me tell you something. We're a mess. And I'm telling you right now, people, and I'm telling you right now, and you put all money you got in a bank on it. He's coming, and he's coming quick. This thing is winding up, and you better get your head straightened out, and you better get yourself focused, and you better decide what is the priority in your life. You better, some of you better do what Lot did when he found out after he wasted his time. Remember what he did when he found out God was coming and going to destroy it all? He went to his family. He went to his children. And he begged them to do what's right. You know what the Bible says? They laughed of him as one that mocked. Job's kids said to themselves, you, Daddy? Why, Daddy, you'd be the last person in the world that I think God would give a message to. You, Daddy? You, Daddy? I'm done. Romans chapter 11 is a great chapter. He tells us not to be ignorant. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. The fullness of the Gentiles is almost in. And we as a church, as individuals, need to be about our Father's business. And there's no room for anybody not understanding the urgency of the hour and what we got to get done. And yet I stand here before you after saying what I just said, realizing that most cases, if in most churches, and this church is a little different than most, but in, if yeah, I preach this in most churches, it would go one ear out the other. People right now, hearing what I'm saying, would be thinking to themselves, man, I got to get out and see what the chief score is, or I got to go do this, or I got a thing this afternoon I got to do, or I got this, I got that, that's more important. And there alone lies the problem. What is more important today in your life and my life? and dedicating the last moments that we have to doing what God wants us to do. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> Lord, help us today. <clears throat> help us to be found faithful in all the things that we endeavor to do for thee. Lord, we get so sidetracked. Uh, you know what? I, I, I get so sidetracked. Lord, there's so many things in my life that, <clears throat> that pull me off task. 
so many stupid things. Now, Lord, we are such a frail people. We are such a people who need an accountability. Lord, we are so screwed up in our, <coughs> in our priorities, our balance. And, <coughs> you know, Lord, we just, we, we get an attitude toward God and we just, we just lose everything in our perspective. And everything out there in this world becomes more important than what God has called us to do. And, Lord, I know, I look ahead, just like any parent looking out for their children. My job is to look nigh into my flocks and know the state of my flocks. And I'm telling them, Lord, today, and Lord, you know it's true more than I ever could know. What's coming to this country, what's coming to American Christianity, it's either going to go to the point where we're going to stand there naked as a jaybird because we blew the opportunities we had, or we're going to go through the greatest bloodbath that we could ever hope. That we're going to lose everything we've got. We're going to be destitute. We're going to have nothing. We're going to lose our home. We're going to lose everything financially we have. We're going to lose everything we have, and we're going to have to just get through knowing that God is enough. Boy, what a shock for us. What a shock for us with all the cars we have and the nice houses we have and all the things we have in our homes and all the fun things we have, our golf clubs, our ball bats, our, our roller skates, our, 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 our basketballs, everything. What a shock for us to wake up some morning and have to deal with the reality that it's all gone and now it's just me and you. Dear Father, help me to always preach the truth. Help me to be like a Micaiah, not care what anybody thinks, but preach the truth. Help me be like Elijah, who always just stands for the things that God wants. Lord, you send those men back in the tribulation, at least Elijah. But Lord, help us to be Elijah's today, in these last days before Jesus comes back, these last moments of this last time. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For our sake, we ask it. Amen.